they come and go. So the kind of basic kind of ground that we approach things with is going to change our the quality of attention that we bring. So with identification as basis, then the ground that we have to navigate is completely different than if we have a different perspective. And, you know, how many of us really get it as we're navigating the stuff that comes up, that what's coming up is experience? (laughs) It's not me. It's not mine. And it's not going to last, you know? It's like we, these kinds of things kind of fly out the window when there's just a little bit of heat. So what's needed is, is to remember that this is something that is important to bring to what we're dealing with. And it's easy to remember when we remember, and it's not easy to remember when we forget. (laughs) Which is part of the reason why we need to practice. So, you know, it has a nice little kind of um, mathematical elegance to it. Suffering gives us the opportunity to reflect, and with suffering we have the opportunity either to create more suffering or to practice in a way which allows for the end of suffering. The more that we practice that allows the end of suffering, the more that we have the remembrance or the energy or the momentum that supports the ending of suffering. The more that we practice in a way that supports cultivating more suffering, the stronger and the more tenacious it is to use those same old patterns and views and values to create more suffering. So every time we remember that this is just experience, this is not me, it's not mine, it's not ultimate, it's not forever, it's not going to be the end of the story, then we create a little bit more window towards the ending of suffering. And every time we forget, then we dig that little pattern a little bit deeper. So when we approach difficulties with the right attitude already, we've got, you know, 60% of the game already won. (laughs) And yet, 60% of the game ain't the game. It's not over till it's over. And so, you know, most of us, we need to invest in the kind of positive qualities that give us the strength both to stay remembering as well as to give us ballast to deal with the stuff that is hard to navigate. So having ease and well-being and relaxation in the body is certainly huge, because without that, we just don't have much at all to work with. And then beginning to remember the kind of basic thing about what's happening. This is an experience. It's not ultimately who I am. And then bringing the kind of principal qualities of how do you deal with stuff which is difficult. So difficulties have different flavors. So the three primary flavors is is that it's nice and we want it. It's not nice and we don't want it. Or we can't be bothered and we're spaced out. Okay. So with the kind of it's nice and I want it, you know, there's that kind of tightness and holding and contraction and I want it. And one can just feel the wanting feel the wanting and the quality of the wanting as a somatic experience and then begin to see if it's possible to find alignment and balance in the wanting so that you're not trying to get rid of the wanting. You're not trying to get rid of experience. What we're trying to do is come into a healthier relationship with it 
and we can feel that wanting in our body, what that feels like, or that kind of leaning forward, you know, just like, and just get a sense of what that feels like. And so when one can bring that into awareness, then it gives immediately the ground for finding a little bit more balance and a little bit more perspective to just let it soften. And the same is true when we're not wanting, like, you know, get it out of here, or yuck, you know? You know, that sense is, is, you know, there's a sense of leaning back, of pushing it away and leaning back, and you can feel it, you know, as your body starts to make subtle movements in in this direction. And again, if we reconnect with alignment and balance in the physical body, it will give us the context for navigating that not wanting in our mind. And then watching what happens when we're not interested or, you know, things are dull or it's not dramatic or it's not grabbing our attention and we're kind of slipping away or zoning out or spacing out and the kind of dullness that's present. And again, you know, what can happen is if we just reinvest in the posture and the alignment and the uprightness and allow the energies to flow, the breath to come in and to release, and we can see then that the quality of attention can be able to be with stuff that doesn't have, you know, flashing lights connected to it. It can be with stuff that's not that particularly interesting or exciting. Difficulties can arise in flavors of hindrances. So we've just talked about greed and aversion. You know, we haven't talked about doubt. You know, that sense of, you know, I don't know. You know, I don't know how what I should do, and I don't know what my practice should be, and I don't know, you know, I don't know if I'm good enough, and I don't know if it's going to work out, and I don't know the answer. And so there's a difference between speculative doubt that's like, well, how do you get on the subway to get from here to wherever, and the kind of doubt of, well, you know, I have no idea what the next step is in terms of how to navigate in the practice. And so, you know, oftentimes we think, well, because thinking seems to be the thing that we do a lot, that the more we think, that the more we'll be able to figure it out. (laughs) And so we try and think ourselves out of doubt, and it doesn't work that way. So doubt is like one of these conundrums that you have to shift to a different level You have to actually begin to open to doubt from a different perspective rather than just from thought. And again, one can feel doubt as a somatic experience. It's almost as if there's no ground. You know? You're not really sure. And so one of the things to do when you feel doubt is to just come back to what you know. Bring your attention back to what you know. And sometimes it can be as simple as just feeling your weight on the floor. You know. You know that your weight is held by the ground. You know that there's a force that's pulling you into the earth. You know that the breath comes in and comes out. And with each in-breath, there's an expansion. With out-breath, there's a contraction. And so when we come back to what we know, then it then gives us more capacity to be with doubt. Now, one of the things about doubt is is that we're constantly having to navigate uncertainty, and we hate that, like with an absolute livid passion, you know, because not knowing is like not being able to locate oneself. You don't have the answer. You're not sure the direction, and you have to just trust things are going to unfold. 
And most of us would rather die or kill than to deal with doubt and not know. So part of what we need to learn how to do is to develop the capacity for tolerating that discomfort of not knowing. And so rather than the mind looping through all the possibilities, there's this possibility and that possibility and this possibility and that possibility, is just hold still in the uncertainty of not knowing. And in that uncertainty of not knowing, feeling the discomfort, the agitation, or the wanting, the wanting to know, the wanting to have security, the wanting to have ground. And watch what that does to the body. And yet as we open to that wanting and that not wanting, then what we can do is we can find a kind of ease that comes. Oh, this is uncertainty. It feels like this. You know, I don't know. It feels like that. You know, it's not clear. It feels like this. And I'm not sure when it's going to be clear, you know. And so one of the interesting things about my life, you know, I, I've, my, my life story has had some twists and turns to it and certainly have had to navigate an awful lot of uncertainty. And I think one of the, you know, people have said to me, they use the word courage. I hear the word courage a lot when they, when they refer to some of the things that I've had to go through. And yet my internal experience is not of courage. My internal experience is, is hanging out with the unknown. You know, that's what my sense of what I've been doing is, is. And so the capacity to hang out with the unknown then allows me to take risks that otherwise people think, oh, wow, you know, I can't do that. Because I don't know. I don't know how it's going to work out. But I know that I can hang out with the unknown. And because I know that I can hang out with the unknown, then I don't need to know all the details. I don't need to know how it's going to work out. And, you know, and so then that's made it possible to, you know, for example, live as an alms mendicant in Colorado Springs of all weird places on the planet. <laughs> you know, one would not think that that would be a place that would be richly endowed with support for Buddhist alms mendicant nuns, and it's not. <laughs> But there's enough, you know? There's enough to live, and that's all I need is enough. I don't need it to be rich. I need it to be enough. I need to eat every day, but I don't need it to be, you know, well established. So you start with a little bit, and then from that little bit, one can begin to get a feeling that there's actually quite a lot more peace with navigating the uncertainty than fighting for for what one can't get, which is certainty, you know? I can't create certainty out of uncertainty. What I can do is relax into uncertainty and find a peacefulness with it. So that kind of doubt around circumstances is one kind of doubt. But another kind of doubt, which I think we all have to navigate, which is in some ways more insidious, is the kind of sense that it's like, you know, somehow fundamentally I'm flawed, you know, or that I don't have a right to exist. Or that I have to, you know, you know, just being alive is something that's not given. It's something I have to fight for, you know. And then when we start looking at this stuff, this is not the same kind of speculative doubt. This is a kind of self-doubt which is interwoven with lack of self-love and lack of self-respect and self-hatred. And what I find in teaching in this culture is, is that it's endemic. It's absolutely everywhere. And it's so endemic that people can't even see the forest for the trees. You know, they can't see the wallpaper because it's like just kind of white noise that's just so constant 
that it's not even seen for what it is. And that takes a particular vigilance to wake up to and a willingness to stop believing in that and a, a clear reflections that this is a conditioned pattern. It's not the truth. It feels like it's the truth, but it is not the truth. And so uh, sometimes one needs to start with, um, you know, just the sense that, that, it, that this is not the voice of wisdom and compassion speaking, you know, but it's something else. And sometimes one can get a feeling for why these things have arisen in this way, and we can see the cause and effect relation with this is cause, this is result. And when you see the cause and effect relationship with that, then one doesn't even need to feel badly that this is there, even though one can feel sad that it's there. But it's like, well, when you've got this kind of patterning that's set up, then it's inevitable that these are going to be the kind of ways that you feel, you know? So that it's nobody's fault and nobody's blame that these things arise. But what it is, is everyone's responsibility to start waking up to it and not to believe it, that this is, this is the truth, this is the eternal truth, and this is absolutely what's left when everything falls away. I mean, somebody described this image of, you know, if you were digging for water and you had, a, you had a sense that there was a cesspit underneath the ground that was like infinite in all directions, you, know, you were going to be very motivated to dig. And, you know, what the image was, was is that, well, that's kind of like the fundamental feeling that we have about ourselves, you know? Is, is that we're not going to a place of pure, clear, nourishing water. We're going into something which is overwhelming and foul and infinite. And so what we need then is to touch into that which is beautiful and wholesome and grounded and good to get a sense that, well, actually that sense is not an accurate sense and that actually there is a lot of stuff there that is nourishing and wholesome and pure and clean. And so in that sense, what we need to do is to begin to start cultivating the, the, the reflection that the nature of the mind is luminous, it's clear, it's bright, and that the obscurations that we have to deal with, the defilements that we have to deal with, are like clouds in the sky. You know, the sun is always shining, it's always present, but sometimes the clouds obscure it. And so when we think that way, when we reflect that way, then it can bring some perspective to this other sense, which is, is that, you know, if we look deeply, all we're going to uncover is a cesspit that's infinite in all directions, you know. And so then we need to begin to see that that is a feeling that's based on conditioning that it actually isn't the truth of the way things are. And then begin to start waking up to some of the ways in which that conditioning gets supported and encouraged and entrenched and being vigilant around the places where one can move away from that, where one can begin to start feeling the sense of the luminosity of the mind and the radiance of the mind as our natural resting place and to begin to get a sense that when everything falls away the luminosity of the mind the natural infinite loving capacity of the heart and mind is what is left and so then when we have that sense then it gives us tremendously more interest and capacity for dealing with the difficulties rather than feeling like we were uncovering an infinite cesspit that's in all directions. Yeah. 
So how do we switch? How do we switch from one sense to the other sense? And, you know, unfortunately, I don't have a magic wand. (laughs) I wish I did. You know, for me, it's been hard work because I've had both senses. I've had both sense of being able to rest in the natural luminosity of the mind and also really surprised by the layers of self-doubt, self-hatred that have been buried and covered and ossified and solidified and petrified you know and for me you know part of my practice has been allowing this stuff to come into awareness and see it for what it is and let it come into the air and no longer be the kind of driving force that's motivating me and the way that I live and the choices that I make and the way that I respond and it hasn't been a weekend project you know So for me, it's required both the skillfulness to start shifting the conditioning so that it's more positive and trusting the ability to rest in the natural luminosity of the mind whenever that is something that I'm experiencing. And with these two ends of this, you know, both the kind of unconditioned end and the conditioned end, working to get more leverage around it, as well as the vigilance, an increasing vigilance that this stuff is absolutely no good to believe in. You know, so once I began to see the way the patterns were working and how things were entrenched in that way, I began to realize I have to wake up to this stuff and not follow it and not believe it. You know, so part of it was to simply the commitment to non-harm, which I needed to see. I have to actually bring that back here, like first and foremost. And first and foremost, and non-harm is not believing this garbage, you know, which gets circulated. So it's not an easy thing. I haven't found it an easy thing, and yet I found that the fruits of the efforts that I have made have borne good result. And the good result is is that I I sit more in my own skin. You know, I don't feel like I'm jumping out of my skin at every instance. And that, for me, is a real blessing. You know, some of the difficulties that we have to deal with have to deal with trauma. Trauma. So stuff happens and it's absolutely terrifying, either psychologically or threatening to us physically. And, you know, what comes as a result of that is there's an impression that gets embedded in our nervous system and our body, which then continues to get activated and reacted in any kind of situation which is uh, triggering. And, you know, one can see that the effect of trauma will last until the trauma is resolved. And people who have been in, you know, difficult situations of a lot of combat or violence, you know, have post-traumatic stress disorder where the trauma is constantly being activated and triggered in just daily life situations. And so, you know, working with trauma is a whole other level of working with difficulties. And there's a whole science and art to it, which is not entirely dissimilar from meditation, but it's a particularly refined skill and application of meditation, which unless you know it, is not necessarily intuitive. You know, trauma is not resolved as an emotional experience. It's resolved as a somatic one. And so what one is needing is absolutely to have a ground of ease and well-being to return to as the resource to meet this stuff and to meet it as somatic experiences, the shape and the color and the sight, and to watch these somatic sensations change 
alternating between the difficulties that one is experiencing or the unpleasant sensations and a place of ease and well-being and refuge that one has in the breath or in a sense of confidence or safety or in a sense of imagining a, uh, a circumstance where one feels utterly peaceful and completely relaxed. And then very carefully, without pushing in any way, meeting these unpleasant sensations and then oscillating back and forth between the pleasant and the unpleasant, the pleasant and the unpleasant. And then as one meets this stuff, allowing the natural discharging mechanisms of the body, the shaking, the trembling, the quivering, the emotions to uprise and then to release, they happen by themselves. And in my the people that I work with and in some of the circumstances that I've had to journey through myself, you know, I can see that learning skill around trauma has been something that has been important and that it's not something that is intuitive or a natural consequence of even decades of meditation because the skill is very specific. And yet, again, when there is an effort to meet this stuff and allow it to release the results are worth their weight in gold. You know, it's a completely different system that is rested and released from trauma than one who is constantly being activated and reactivated from that pattern. One of the things that happens to us is that we can have stuff that comes and then it repeats and 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 and five years later it's still repeating. And we think, you know, come on, what's going on here? You know, I've been meeting it. You know, I've been working with it, and it's still repeating. And I think, you know, for me, in a situation like that, you know, what I've needed to do was to change the frame of reference. So if it comes as a thought, to look at the emotion behind it. Or if it comes as an emotion, to feel the somatic quality behind it. So we have four frames of reference And if something is constantly coming in one frame of reference, to change it and look at it, explore it from another frame of reference. You know, sometimes what's needed is just to open up the question and see, well, what is actually needing accepting here? You know? And sometimes what's needed is to begin to explore it from slightly different ways. I remember there was a situation that happened and I was furious about it and angry and wounded and hurt and distrusting. And like five years later, it hadn't shifted. So I thought, you know, I don't know quite what the deal is, but my magic wands of doing metta, of contemplating death, of working with this and working with that, you know, it's not the magic wand. It's not making it go away. And then in another context with another set of tools, I was able to realize, well, what actually had happened was that there was something else that actually had made me considerably more angry, quite a bit younger, and that that actually was the thing that I was dealing with, even though this external thing was the place that was gravitating all my attention. So it actually wasn't the cause, it was the trigger. And it took a lot of inquiry for me and safety for me to be able to move past the initial grabbing of the trigger to look at the cause. Because the cause required me to navigate material that allowed me to experience quite a considerable more level of vulnerability, as well as a lot of all the other primary emotions in a way that was very intense. So for me, it was the interest to understand, it was the recognition that the suffering hadn't ended, 
And it was the exploration of what else do I need to do in order to see how I can relate to this so that I can come into a way of peaceful abiding that gave me the willingness to explore. Because after a number of years, my same old, same old has, wasn't working. And what I kept getting was it's just a repeat of patterns that I could see were not uh, shifting. Sometimes what's needed is to imagine engaging in this pattern. And Ajahn, Ajahn um, we have some funny stories about that. There's a hilarious story. This is a true story. Have you all heard about Vipassana romances? No. Is that serious? Okay. So Vipassana romances is that you sign up for a 10-day retreat or a three-month retreat or a six-month retreat, and everybody's in silence and you don't know anybody, okay? And you find somebody who's there who is absolutely the quintessential love of your life. (laughs) And you know that their feelings about you are mutual, and you can tell by where they're leaving their shoes and how they're eating their breakfast. (laughs) It's obvious. And so what can happen on a retreat situation with stuff like this, okay, so the energy is contained and there's more concentration, is that the defilements have an absolute field day. And so, you know, the feelings of longing or the feelings of romance or the feelings of passion or sexual desire can just be absolutely through the ceiling, right? So one fella had a Vipassana romance with one of the retreatants who he'd never met. He did not have any idea who she was, but was convinced that this person indeed was the love of his life and that the feelings were mutual. And it was circling and 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 circling. He had no capacity to navigate it, so he just decided to let it rip. And so he imagined, you know, the romantic coming together and them absolutely being the soulmates of their lives and having a time of courtship and a time of consummation and deciding they were going to get married. They got married, they had children, and then eventually it fell apart. They decided to divorce. (laughs) They split up the household so that he worked the whole thing through in his head. This is an entire fantasy. It's all on the level of imagination. He hasn't said a word to her. By the time the retreat finishes... He'd worked it through so much, he didn't even want to say hello. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so there are times, particularly if you're contained enough, where one can actually do this as an imagination rather than acting it out, where one can actually play through scenarios in one's mind and have it release. Something releases. And, uh, you know, so the engaging with things on an imagination level is different than what we normally think about doing in terms of just watching things arise and letting them go. And yet sometimes when things are repeating again and again and again and we haven't got any other handle and all the other things that we've tried are not working, that's something that can help. And Manindraji said the same. He, he had a, an absolute craving, a sweet tooth for Bengali sweets. And these are like sugar to the 10th power. I mean, I don't know how you can get sugar to the 10th power, but Bengali sweets are like that. So he was craving them, and then somebody went out and got him a pound. I mean, one little bit this much would like knock you out, you know? 
So he got a pound of them and sat and mindfully ate the entire pound of Bengali sweets. And when he finished, he was completely finished with Bengali sweets. (laughs) Permanently finished with Bengali sweets. Obviously, if one's practicing on this level, you need to be really careful because because sometimes with the things that we're dealing with, it moves or our instinct is to not just contain it as an imagination, but then to start acting on it. And we have to be very careful with that. But so you see then, when we've got difficulties that are arising, there's a whole huge level of resource that we can bring. But what is needed is to remember fundamentally that, first of all, what arises is experience and it's not who we are. It doesn't last forever. It's not the ultimate truth. And then as we bring that knowledge and a simple kind of relaxed, balanced body experience to meet it, that very much helps us shift our relationship with experience into something that is more easeful and peaceful, where we're allowing things to arise, we're knowing them as they arise, we're allowing them to end, and there isn't that kind of fighting, warring, wanting, not wanting, zoning out, which is our normal habit when we're dealing with stuff that we don't want to experience. The more we're present with what is, then the more there is a sense of being alive, a more sense of our capacity of opening, of, of a sense of easefulness and peace. And that easefulness and peace can then extend even if the content of what we're experiencing can be very unpleasant, very challenging. So check it out. Is it worthwhile? You know, is it relevant? worth putting some time and effort into? I mean, you have to make those decisions. So I thought I'd stop the reflection here. Um, Maybe we can stand up and um, then regroup and have a conversation.